and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the expected announcement tomorrow, Wednesday, by Governor Ron DeSantis that he's running for the presidency, which will be delivered in a conversation with Elon Musk on Twitter before a potential audience of 140 million of Musk's Twitter followers. We'll assess the chances of the most likely candidate to challenge Trump, who is 34 points behind Trump at the moment and is not a natural retail politician. In fact, is the opposite, relying on his wife Casey to make up for his lack of charm and people skills. Joining us is Michael Binder, a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics, and public opinion. He is the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida, and we will discuss how DeSantis is positioning himself as far to the right as possible, and while Trump is a genuine authoritarian who emulates dictators, DeSantis seems more cynical in choosing an authoritarian path to power. Then we'll get an update on the up-and-down, on-and-off negotiations over the debt ceiling to determine how much punishment will be afflicted on the poor to reward the rich, which is clearly McCarthy's priority. Joining us is Whitney Tucker, Director of State Fiscal Policy Research at the Centre for Budget and Policy Priorities, where she coordinates the Centre's efforts to design and promote more inclusive and equitable tax and budget policies. She has a report at the Centre for Budget and Policy Priorities, Republican Debt Ceiling and Cuts Bill would cost states and local communities $1.3 trillion. Then finally, we'll explore the possibility that Putin could be arrested if he shows up for the BRICS summit in South Africa in August, since South Africa is a signatory to the International Criminal Court, which has an outstanding warrant for Putin. And South Africa's leader, Cyril Ramaphosa, has urged Putin not to show up, although Putin has indicated he is determined to attend the summit. Joining us is Kent Harrington, a former senior CIA analyst who served as National Intelligence Officer for East Asia and Chief of Station in Asia. We'll discuss his article at his substack, First and Second Thoughts, Pursuing Russia's War Crimes, Words Are Good, Actions Are Better. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org, contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is Michael Bender, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics and public opinion, and he's the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Bender. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And now we're learning that Governor DeSantis of Florida is going to announce uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, that he's running for president, but he's going to do it in conversation with Elon Musk. And I guess the theory being that Musk's 140 million Twitter followers will be helpful in getting DeSantis's message across. Do you think that's going to work? I mean, I'm not sure that in just using Twitter, Twitter followers is the best way to kind of get your message out and get attention. I think the auxiliary attention from the free media will ultimately be what's either helpful or not. Although, right, Elon Musk has a lot of money and having control of Twitter, you know, having somebody that supports you in that position isn't always the worst thing on earth. But I think that's going to be an interesting, if not extremely awkward conversation. But what is DeSantis doing tying himself to the kind of reckless conspiracy theories and insanity that Elon Musk propagates regularly? Well, there is a slice of the Republican electorate, particularly those that vote in primaries that are that are big fans of Elon Musk. Now, I don't know that that's the majority of the Republican Party's primary electorate, but but it's certainly a piece of it. And you know, having that support and having that bullhorn, uh, certainly in, in a primary, you need to have your base. And if that's where you can find your anchor, uh, especially from somebody who's come out, you know, not supportive of Donald Trump, I think, you, you know, you, you take what you can get. Right. But DeSantis is just way down in the polls compared to Trump. I mean, what, he's about 34 points behind? Sure. But, but everybody else is, right? It's not like he's behind six people. Uh, he might be down in the polls, but he's still running number two. And as long as you're running number two, uh, you're in a pretty good position because as this, listen, as this race goes on, polls are going to vacillate tremendously, particularly within a party, because there's not big policy differences between a lot of these candidates. So if other people fall out and he's left as the lone alternative to Trump, uh, it, it's possible that he could he could make a little bit of a move then. So, you know, I don't pay a ton of attention to early polling, uh, particularly when you're going to have eight, 10, maybe 12 candidates on the Republican side. But we've first spoken before, and I think you were the first to point out to me that there's maybe less that meets the eye, because obviously from right out of the gate, DeSantis got a lot of attention because uh, he's an alternative to Trump. And my understanding is that he did get a certain amount of money poured in, but not a lot of national money. My understanding is that most of his backing comes from a handful of real estate developers who are big, uh, you know, boosters of Israel, which explains why DeSantis has made his trips to Israel and keeps making a big deal out of it, saying that he brought back some special holy water, I guess, from Israel to baptize his kids and that Israel is the foundation of Judeo-Christian values, etc. So is he sort of 
beholden to local real estate developers' money, or is he is he able to reach out beyond that Florida base? Well, ultimately, if he really wants to extend this run and, and make a real push, he's going to absolutely have to nationalize that donation base. And it's not just the $100 or 50 bucks you get from an average voter. It's big money donors from across the country. You need a lot of them to sustain the costs associated with flying around in private jets all across this country, right? The United States is a large country uh, it, and it takes time and energy and resources to hopscotch from New Hampshire to South Carolina to Iowa, back to Florida, out to California to ask for more money. And he's gonna need to expand that donor base for sure. And you know, yes, he kind of got out to a hot start and then once Trump started attacking him, he cooled off a little bit. Uh, but still, I'd rather be in DeSantis's position than, say, a Tim Scott or, or a Nikki Haley that never really had the boost at all. That being said, no, I, I you know, I, I don't necessarily think he's the shoe in to win the nomination by any stretch of the imagination. But just uh, focusing in on him as a candidate, he was in Iowa, and it seems that his wife, uh, Casey, has an inordinate amount of influence. She's a former television presenter, and he just doesn't seem to be very good on the stump. And he answers a few questions, and then she butts in and sort of takes over. Some, I mean, <laughs> Roger Stone, of course, not as exactly the greatest source, uh, but Roger Stone has referred to her as Lady Macbeth, What's the buzz in, in Florida about her and about their relationship? Yeah, I mean, the the circle for Ron DeSantis was small when he got elected. And it's really even gotten smaller, particularly in the last election. And the success, I think, that they enjoyed with their margin of victory in the fall uh, may have furthered the idea that a small circle is really all that they need. And I think that's probably a mistake. Uh, you need to have experienced people that have run national races. It's different courting precinct captains in Iowa than it is bullying state legislators in Florida to get a policy through. And yes, Casey is, is very influential. Uh, they're very much a team. And uh, Casey's very much a true believer in, in a lot of the social issues and culture war aspects of, of the campaign that he's run so far. Now, does that last going forward? I think it's going to be difficult. You know, the one thing about national campaigns in America is they expose who you are as a person for better or for worse. And say what you will about Donald Trump and all of his legal problems and, and, and what he might think about democracy and how he acts in office. The guy has a charisma about him that draws people in. Ron DeSantis lacks that. And over the course of a campaign, that's going to be difficult to overcome. So let's focus in on who he is as a person. You know, he's been pretty much shielded. He doesn't do press conferences. More often than not, he appears with a big phalanx of burly police behind him. On the matter of police, by the way, one of the extraordinary reports that uh, we've just read recently in The Guardian is that DeSantis has a $13.5 million police program that lures officers from across the country with violent records to serve in Florida. 
So he seems to be just finding ways to outright wing anybody and everybody, including Donald Trump. Where's the the polling on that? Are we not aware of how far America has gone to the right, or at least a, a substantial chunk of America? Is, is something happening here that I'm missing, or are we just galloping to the far right here in this country? Well, I think we're talking about two different things, right? Uh, America as an entirety has not moved that far to the right. The Republican primary electorate, I think, has, or at least a sizable portion of it has. And that's really where a lot of these candidates, Trump and DeSantis in particular, are targeting, because that's where the voters lie. And the program that, that you alluded to, uh, you know, luring police from other parts of the country, you know, I, I think if you're a DeSantis supporter, you might say, oh, it's just a few bad apples. Uh, you know, it's not like all 600 out-of-state people are ended up in jail, uh, but but certainly a handful had. And if you look at the incentives in play, sure, if, if you're a cop in New York City and you have a variety of, of abuse, abusive complaints against you and maybe your career's kind of stalled because of that, you're looking for a fresh start, maybe you're more incentivized to come here than everybody else. So maybe you're more inclined to get folks like that. Uh, but if you're a supporter of the Sanders, you're like, eh, a couple bad apples. Or you ignore it completely and you say, oh, police can do no wrong and these are just bogus complaints from criminals. Uh, so you can look at this uh, from another lens on the right and see that this guy is you know, sticking it to the left and, uh, you know, fighting against the woke ideology because that's not something that you believe in. So in terms of him, uh, you know, I just mentioned uh, that he doesn't do press conferences. Do you think that being on the campaign trail for a national election, he simply can't get away with just basically having press conferences without the press and announcing stuff and signing stuff in the middle of the night and this kind of behavior? Is he going to have to really face the press, do press conferences? Because he doesn't do very well. He's not a people person. He doesn't do well on the campaign trail. He's he's kind of the opposite of, of, of the baby-kissing, glad-handing candidate, isn't he? Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, that That is certainly not his strong suit, nor is it his comfort zone. Uh, but I, I think ultimately you're going to have to do some of that. Uh, New Hampshire and Iowa are, are small places, and voters there like to literally reach out, touch, and feel the candidates that come through there. You know, you go to the diners, you, you go to the pie-eating contest at the local fair. These are all things that candidates do, and that's one of the reasons why Trump is so successful. There's an authenticity to his enthusiasm and zeal around people. Ron DeSantis is the other side of that. He might do okay in small rooms with with high money donors, but out in the crowd, uh, he he's not comfortable. He's not natural. He I don't know. Possibly he could get better at it with Tom, some time and some practice. But but it's really difficult to fool the electorate and and try to be somebody that you're not. Now is there a, a path to victory? by just essentially hiding out and dodging the press. You know, maybe you could have done that in 2020 with Biden. He didn't do a lot of campaigning out in the States during, during COVID. Uh, but I don't think in 2023 and 2024, particularly among the Republican Party, uh, you know, that that's a path for victory. I don't think that's a, a high likelihood of success. 
So his most recent appearance, DeSantis spoke before the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Florida, in Orlando, and um, he, again, trying to pander to the far right or the furthest fringes of the right, he implied that he would last more than one term because Trump is restricted to one term not to mention his age, but he more or less said, I'm, you know, I'm good to go for two terms and I want to have a Supreme Court that's seven to two conservative majority, suggesting that, you know, maybe Alito and Thomas could retire along with Sotomayor, etc. So is that going to work? I mean, is that the best he's got to win over the evangelicals? Because well, uh, I mean, it's it's an it's an avenue that Trump took in 2016 and, and, and proved successful for him. Uh, you know, there was a lot of Republicans in 2016 that weren't sold on Trump, but were fearful of the court. Now, it, it's a harder sell when you're staring at uh, essentially a six three Republican majority now to say, oh, we need to push it to seven two when you've already gotten rid of Roe v. Wade and you've had a number of issues, particularly around gerrymandering that have been kind of pro-Republican. So so there's less of that fear factor as opposed to if it were, say, a 5-4 split or 4-5 to five if you're on the losing side of that. Uh, but it's certainly an argument that, that some within the party on, on both sides are cognizant of the, the role that the courts play, certainly in policy interpretation in this country. And we've seen that just this past year with Roe v. Wade. So will there be any effect from what the NAACP are issuing now, a travel advisor to Florida, basically saying it's openly hostile towards African-Americans and people of color and LGBTQ individuals? I mean, I don't I don't think so is the short answer. Might a few people decide not to come here potentially? Might a couple of people decide not to move here potentially? Uh, do, do those few people get outweighed by bigots on the other side that are attracted to that message, maybe. I think the real issue is, do large organizations choose not to have conferences and meetings in the state? Uh, that That's the stuff that really starts to impact tourism dollars, right? Those 10,000 person conventions or conferences. But the problem is with those, they take a year to plan or more. So we won't really find out some of the long-term political implications of something like that for eight, nine months, a year, year and a half down the road. And by that time, you know, he's off either in Washington or he's got his tail tucked between his legs back in Tallahassee after not winning the primary. Uh, So I don't know that it's going to make any impact quickly. And I don't know if it does make an impact that we're going to know about it really in time to judge the impact before we get to vote for president. So what do you think then is the impact of his feud with Disney? Because a lot of traditional conservative Republicans, are so, you know, they're pro-business and doesn't make any sense to beat up on a private company as DeSantis is trying to do. And initially it looked like Disney, you know, outmaneuvered him, but he's dogged. He's really out to get them. And I'm wondering whether uh, that's going to work, going after the happiest place on earth is a strange tactic it, it is uh you know i'm i'm not a huge disney person myself just as an, a, a person that experiences the park you know you go there you say it's the happiest place on earth nobody's ever smiling uh but but disney has a complicated relationship in florida and and and, it, and it's very complex and there's a love-hate relationship but you're absolutely right uh, republicans those pro-business traditional republicans 
uh, are really finding themselves kind of in a tough spot with the new Republican Party post-Trump. They're not the main drivers of policy anymore. They still get a lot of the policy they like, but they're not the main core of the party. It's really this kind of, you know, Trumpian grassroots type of policies that aren't so big business. I don't want to say that it's it's a little guy party because it's not, but they're not the drivers anymore. And so when you're looking for votes in a primary, you may not have to play to Wall Street in order to win a primary election. And I think those kind of moderate Republicans that are pro-business, low taxes, but maybe less caring on the social issues, they're finding themselves maybe in need of a different party because they just can't quite pull themselves to the Democratic side yet. So I think that's a balance that folks are, are, are having to wrestle with. And this war with Disney that is continuing to extend, uh, they think it's a winner. And by they, I mean the, the DeSantis campaign. I'm not convinced. I think at best they can hope for a push. Uh, but but there's a lot of risk there if it if it ultimately comes out that Disney ultimately outmaneuvers them. Uh, that would be that'd be really bad and and kind of real egg on his face type of situation. So just in closing, then Michael, what's your sense since you followed DeSantis and he is your governor? I find the guy terrifying because he just seems to be arbitrarily looking for the most hateful policies he can possibly find and foisting them on the country. And, you know, he's got this kind of, I mean, Trump is definitely a a fascist in the sense that he models himself on Mussolini and others. And um, he has has an inordinate affection towards fascists like Putin and others and so-called strongmen and authoritarian leaders, etc. This guy just seems to basically have policies that are in line with the, the worst instincts of humanity. I mean, we know Trump is, is psychotic and is, is cruel, but this guy seems to be using cruelty as a weapon, um, which is even more cynical. Yes. Um, I would not put DeSantis in the Trump category as for the personal affinity for those types of leaders. Um, I don't I don't see that in him. But the policies that he puts forth, uh, if you're somebody on the left and you look at these things, you might look at DeSantis as potentially more dangerous than Trump because Trump has this chaos around him that maybe limits his ability to fully implement and go the full distance on some of this stuff. DeSantis doesn't have that, and he has this cold calculatedness about him uh, that enables him to implement policy. So if you like the policies that DeSantis is putting forth, uh, you might like DeSantis more than Trump because you might view him as more effective in getting those policies through. But if you look at those policies as you do and and see them as as bad for humanity, uh, then you might look at DeSantis and be a lot more nervous about him than you would be about Trump. Well, uh, I thank you for joining us, uh, Michael. I, don't, I'm <laughs> I, I won't be glued to the Twitter feed tomorrow. but um, Not tuned into Twitter spaces? <laughs> but somebody has to do it, and I'm sure there'll be more reporting on this, and I thank you for joining us. All right, sounds good. Have a good one.
And again, I've been speaking with Michael Bender, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics, and public opinion. And he's a faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at the negotiations between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy on the debt ceiling to determine how much punishment will be inflicted on the poor to reward the rich, which is clearly McCarthy's priority. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Whitney Tucker, who is Director of, of State Fiscal Policy Research at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, where she coordinates the center's efforts to design and promote more inclusive and equitable tax and budget policies. Previously, she spent nearly a decade advancing anti-poverty policy in child advocacy organizations, serving as Policy Director at NC Child in North Carolina, and as a policy and research associate at the Children's Trust of South Carolina, where she led a statewide coalition advancing early childhood education and economic policy reforms. And she has a report at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, Republican Debt Ceiling and Cuts Bill Would Cost States and Local Communities $1.3 trillion. Welcome to Background Briefing, Whitney Tucker. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're obviously following these machinations going on between House Speaker McCarthy and President Biden. And as the June 1st date looms, they still haven't made uh, deals. They keep saying they're making progress, etc. But many analysts wonder why we're in this position in the first place. I mean, should this be happening Clearly, no, but uh, it's happening. And it's frankly quite frustrating to see, I mean, even the the president's uh, trip abroad uh, recently to the G7 summit was impacted by these deliberations back here in the United States, which were detrimental to American foreign policy. And if the U.S. were were to default, it would be detrimental beyond belief to both our economy and the global economy. So... It's a very strange situation. Uh, We've been there before in 2011, but how would you rate this situation compared to previous acts of brinkmanship? I'd say that this is up there among the worst that we've seen. I mean, we know from previous experience that even threatening to go to the brink of default and not defaulting um, would seriously harm the economy. But we know that previous debt limit impasses have disrupted the treasury debt market. They've caused a decline in liquidity for certain securities. They've added to federal borrowing costs. I mean, this is just all part and parcel of why the debt ceiling shouldn't be used as a bargaining chip. Policymakers can discuss and debate fiscal policies, but that just can't really happen while one party to the negotiations is threatening to ruin the economy and harm families and businesses across the country if it doesn't get its way. This isn't the way to negotiate on those pieces. So it may be futile asking this question, Whitney, but how did uh, the White House get itself in this position? Surely it should have seen it coming. You know, I think that um, 
an, an effort to raise the debt ceiling in a bipartisan way. It's likely behind it. I can't speak for the White House and you know how they make their decisions, but I do believe that um, there's a desire, you know, within the White House and also in Congress to to raise the debt ceiling in a way that is bipartisan and to get to bipartisan agreement on the right funding levels for various programs. I think that this effort to marry those two conversations is something that House Republicans have put forward and that that has been really detrimental to the negotiations overall. So given that uh, Speaker McCarthy has such a thin majority and he seems to be in many ways under the sway or the influence of the House Freedom Caucus, there are some speculation that some of these radicals on the Republican side in the House might well want to crash the economy. I mean, in fact, their hero, the person that they follow and want to have come back in the White House, Donald Trump, at a recent CNN town hall, in effect urged them to default. So is that a factor here, do you think, that we're dealing with, well, I guess it's nihilism, really? You know, it's hard to say. I think that if that is something that's at play here, that this is certainly one way to go about ruining the economy. Um, But we also know that during the Trump administration, the debt limit was suspended three times on a bipartisan basis without threats of default. Right. So it's possible to do this even in a bitterly divided government. So um, we're really seeing a, a renewed interest in this really harmful way of going about raising the debt limit that I think is um, something that I can't explain, but I would like to see in sooner than later. Well, they normally have these debates over the budget, but this seems to be chosen as a more effective way to, you know, rather negotiate terms, but to extort terms. And your recent report indicates that This is really, when you look at the priorities of the Democrats and the Republicans, this is an extraordinary ask on the part of the Republicans to essentially eviscerate Biden's entire domestic policy achievements and to essentially beat up on the poor. I mean, at the end of the day, this would seem to be all about exacerbating the already unfortunate income inequality in this country. At least to my mind, this looks like beating up on the poor in order to reward the rich. And I just don't understand how this could be a priority. But apparently it is. And I'm not sure whether the public, well, from your point of view, you're obviously concerned. But is the public sufficiently aware of what's at stake here and how much this will exacerbate the income divide in this country? You know, I think that the public is aware that cuts to programs that people rely on and really need um, that are vital in their everyday lives are on the table and that media has done a really good job with getting that out. I think that our work at the center and the work of, you know, other organizations like ours is trying to help amplify the exact amount of those cuts and how big of a gap we're talking about. The House Republicans legislative response to the debt ceiling situation is really forcing huge, unpopular, harmful policies through. At least that is their goal, right? So in addition to forcing really strict um, spending caps on federal funding for what are you know called discretionary programs, which are most of the programs that people are familiar with at home, things like defense and veterans health care and child care and public health and food and drug safety inspectors, all of that sort of stuff. This bill would also include provisions in Medicaid, in SNAP, so what is formerly known as food stamps, 
um, in temporary assistance for needy families that provides cash assistance to families. Um, all those provisions that are designed to help take away that um, support from people who don't meet a work reporting requirement, even though there's lots of evidence that those requirements don't actually help anybody get back to work, right? Adding insult to injury, it cuts a lot of funding for things like the IRS. Um, some of that funding was meant to ensure that the agency could actually enforce tax collection on higher income taxpayers, right? So it's it's very um, clearly giving essentially a tax cut to the rich at the expense of everyone else. And um, our work at the center is really to amplify what exactly that expense is. But I don't think that most people are aware of just how severe um, the cost really would be. Well, McCarthy's made it clear that he doesn't want to just protect the Trump and George W. Bush tax cuts for the rich or the super rich. He wants to make them permanent. He also wants to get rid of the estate tax. I don't understand, and Whitney, maybe you can fill me in here. I don't understand whether or not the super rich in this country, who I can't imagine can spend the money they have. You know, you can't sail two yachts at the same time and drive <laughs> in two Rolls Royces at the same time, or three or four or five or whatever, you know, different color for each day of the week or whatever. I mean, you can't simply spend the money that they have. And yet they're getting rewarded and really poor, desperate people, particularly children who are innocent victims, are going to have their food rations taken away and their health coverage taken away. So this part of it I don't understand is... Who's calling for these rewards for the super rich? Are the Republican lawmakers doing it to curry favor with them so they get donations? Are the super rich really asking for more, 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 more? You know, it's hard to say. Both could be possible. I think that um, it is good to be calling attention to the fact that this money is going to the super rich in our country, though, because it really highlights the fact that like it's bigger than just this debt limit proposal. Like you said, those um, expiring Trump tax cuts that House Republicans have really made clear that they intend to make permanent, um, those would cost about $300 billion annually. And there is nothing in this debt limit proposal, anything that's been discussed, at least that's been reported publicly, um, that would go toward actually raising revenues to pay for that loss, right? And so like doing that by itself would erase most of the claimed fiscal savings of the debt limit proposal that Speaker McCarthy put forward. And like, when you look at the tax cuts and the program cuts together, then it is very clear that the current House Republican agenda is to shift trillions of dollars that could be spent on community investments that promote really broad opportunity to instead this really, really small subset of very well-off households and I mean, it could just be as straightforward as a, an honest belief in trickle down economics, despite all of the evidence to the fact that that is a failed theory, right? I, it's hard to say what is really behind it. Um, I'm not, you know, in those rooms where those sort of machinations could be happening, but I do think that even if it is an honest belief in the effectiveness of trickle-down economics that House Republicans are ignoring 
the fact that there is serious short and long-term harm that will come to families and communities all over the country if this debt limit proposal were to come through um, with these spending cuts and various proposals that um, are currently in there. And we could do better than this proposal, which would narrow opportunity and deepen inequality and increase hardship for the vast majority of Americans. But back to the notion that the House Freedom Caucus has inordinate influence over McCarthy and for example, they want to eviscerate the FBI and cut their budget dramatically to punish the FBI for what they believe is, you know, comes out of that uh, Durham report, which was a big nothing burger. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. they've decided that something terrible went on uh, with the FBI going after Trump. And they're doing this, trying to exact a big budget cut from the FBI to punish the FBI to help Trump. So there's evidence that this may be their agenda. And is there any evidence that McCarthy can deliver the votes? Because there's been questions all along about that. He's having these negotiations on and off. Things are getting better. Things are getting worse. I think the latest is that things are getting better. But uh, do we really know at the end of the day? I can't imagine Biden's going to buy into the agenda of the uh, Freedom Caucus. Sure. I mean, we don't actually know if the votes are there, but I think that's really the problem with brinksmanship, that we have to behave and President Biden has to behave and other congressional leaders have to behave as if Speaker McCarthy does have the votes um, and as if this is a serious proposal and the House Freedom Caucus could have this sort of, um, you know, intense sway on negotiations. And so, you know, we really need to be able to pass a clean debt ceiling bill without all of these additional uh, you know, threats and cuts to really vital programs, because without it, there is a serious likelihood that that small minority um, of lawmakers could have outsized influence. So do you think, though, that what could happen here, since we're getting close to the deadline, do you think it's possible that they will do the old Washington shuffle and kick the can down the road and, you know, have a short-term bill just to, you know, get us through the next few months? I think that that's a possibility. I don't think that it's ideal. I think that what we want is a clean debt ceiling bill moving forward or to eliminate it altogether, right? But assuming that that's not going to happen, um, anything that could keep us from default, I think, is still a step forward at this point. We know that defaulting for even a few weeks would likely plunge the nation into a recession and drive up unemployment. And that is, you know, at a time when a lot of families are still continuing to recover from the economic fallout caused by COVID-19. And we could lose millions of jobs, trillions of dollars in household wealth. Um, and so I think if if Congress were to, you know, suspend the debt limit rather than, you know, increase it or completely just, you know, get rid of it, that um, that would at least give some breathing room. It might be a better alternative than what we're doing now. Well, but to Matt Gates and Margie Taylor Greene, having a new rec- having a recession as a result of a default, that's great. That's going to help bring back Trump. So that, this seems to be the wild card here. Yeah, I think that that is a really, um, it's a short-term way to look at a long-term problem. If we were to default, um, Treasury is going to be unable to pay its bills, right? 
which could result in delayed payments for things like Social Security to folks who receive that, to veterans, um, also to families and children who rely on food assistance, to people who rely on rental assistance in order to stay housed. And that would be to all the people who rely on those programs, um, those who don't vote for former President Trump and those who would. Right. And so I think that there are potential negative outcomes of a default that, you know, proponents may not be taking into account fully. Well, but we don't want to go there, do we, in order to find out whether there's still rational people left in this country? Absolutely not. We don't want it to get to this point. So you're obviously working hard on behalf of the, the, the people who will be victims of these cuts, if indeed they're agreed to. And, you know, Hakeem Jeffries of the minority leader in the House has made it clear that they're non-starters, these work requirements, which are absolutely bogus. There's no evidence that they do anything except make people jump through more and more hoops. And the people that they're punishing are people that really are on the margins and have terrible, terrible problems to deal with, let alone having to fill out extra forms and get one thing wrong and you lose your benefits and all this unnecessary cruelty. So this is the situation we're in. And just in closing, what's your sense then of whether... McCarthy and Biden can save us from this uh, abyss. I have faith that they can come to an agreement here, and certainly one without instituting work requirements for programs like SNAP and Medicaid that families rely on and work requirements that we know don't work. Um, When it comes to those, the cruelty really is the point, and that shines through in the proposals that are in this current bill. Um, Work requirements are rooted in really discriminatory stereotypes based on race and gender and class that imply that people who receive those benefits don't work already and have to be compelled to do so. And they just ignore the realities of low-wage work. So I am confident that President Biden and congressional leaders can come to an agreement around the debt ceiling that enables us to ignore these really um, harmful proposals that have been put out and instead move forward with a debt limit proposal that allows the government to keep paying its bills and allows us to keep meeting people's needs because that's what they deserve from their government. Well, Whitney Tucker, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Whitney Tucker, who's director of the State Fiscal Policy Research at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, where she coordinates the center's efforts to design and promote more inclusive and equitable tax and budget policies. And she has a report at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, Republican Debt Ceiling and Cuts Bill Would Cost States and Local Communities $1.3 trillion. We're going to take a restation break. We're back exploring the possibility that Putin could be arrested if he shows up for the BRICS summit in South Africa in August. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Kent Harrington, a former senior CIA analyst who served as National Intelligence Officer for East Asia and Chief of Station in Asia. And he has an article at his substack, First and Second Thoughts, Pursuing Russia's War Crimes, Words Are Good, Actions Are Better. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kent Harrington. Uh, Thanks, Ian. It's uh, great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Uh, Kent. There's an interesting article at The Guardian by Gordon Brown, the former Labour Prime Minister of, of the UK from 2007 to 2010. And he's suggesting that there's an international petition out there that's growing in numbers. Already two million people have signed this petition calling for Putin to be indicted and arrested. And there's an opportunity to arrest Putin if he shows up in August at the BRICS summit in Johannesburg, South Africa. And BRICS, of course, is the organization of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. So at this point, it looks as if the South Africans are going to stick with their commitments to the International Criminal Court to arrest Putin. And the Prime Minister of South Africa, or the President of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, has urged Putin not to attend the BRICS summit, but Putin, on the other hand, is determined to attend the BRICS summit. So what do you expect to happen there? Well, that's uh, the dictionary definition of the, uh, of the uh, line uh, between, an, between a rock and a hard place when it comes to South Africa's position. Clearly, they've done their best to uh, stay in touch with the Russians and have benefited economically. The ties go way back, as, as you uh, very well know, to the revolutionary period when Russia was much involved in a clandestine as well as overt political way in supporting the ANC and its anti-apartheid period. Uh, At the same time, uh, having emerged as one of the the South's uh, leaders uh, in in the way we divide uh, the the world today, uh, in in a political sense, uh, the obligations that the South African leadership has signed up to and now says, uh, uh, to its credit, it is going to uphold, uh, I think are inevitably going to give Putin uh, a, a very, very difficult choice to make. The degree to which the Europeans have spoken up and spoken out on finally putting uh, the war crimes issue in the place it deserves uh, with respect to uh, our combined effort to support Ukraine as it contends with Russia's invasion, I think is to their uh, everlasting credit. The question, it seems to me, is uh, in looking at the powers that are going to be arrayed on one side of this issue or another, and Putin's decision, uh, what the a U.S. position is going to be alongside the Europeans is going to is going to matter enormously. Not that that will be the deciding factor in whether he uh, challenges the uh, South Africans to make good on their word and tries to show up uh, at the uh, BRIC uh, get together later this year, but rather in terms of how much uh, shall we say there uh, there uh, will be teeth. Uh, in in the uh, in the threat uh, of the warrant being acted upon, I think will matter uh, if the United States uh, lines up as 
it should with its European allies and saying we too believe this is a war crime issue that needs to be pursued now, not later. Well, this week, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, she's meeting along with the Council on Europe in Reykjavik, and she's already called for, quote, a dedicated tribunal to bring Russia's war crimes of aggression to trial. So what's the U.S. position in, I mean, do they have somebody at this uh, Reykjavik conference, or are they just waiting to see uh, what comes out of the Council of Europe's deliberations? Well, I would I would certainly uh, assume that, as in any important international get together, we would have observers there. Uh, it's it's the Europeans' uh, affair, and it's an important uh, council, both because of the values it represents and because of the power of a coordinated and combined position, such as the one that the, the president of the commission is putting forward, and again, to her credit. Uh, it seems to me that the mechanics, uh, legally speaking, of a special uh, international tribunal are fraught in light of the uh, role that the United Nations would play in sanctifying uh, such an effort. But at the same time, uh, putting it on the table, and indeed uh, one hopes putting it on the agenda at the UN, is one way to reinforce what is not a complicated and potentially politically uh, dead-end oriented issue, and that is the work of the International Criminal Court. And it seems to me, uh, whatever the presence of the U.S. is as uh, observer uh, or informal uh, commentator, collaborator at the Reykjavik gathering, seems to me that the United States needs to be on the right side of both of those issues, which is to say, supporting the efforts of the court uh, in its uh, uh, prosecution. At the same time, it endorses seconds uh, uh, rhetorically as well as in substance, uh, backs a, a European initiative already on the table to move forward with a special tribunal. Well, whatever comes out of the Council on Europe meeting in Reykjavik will end up in the, in the UN and would be vetoed by Russia, surely, at the Security Council. But could you then have a majority vote of the 193 members of the UN General Assembly that could charge Putin with war crimes because of his invasion of Ukraine? Well, you've, you, you have asked absolutely the crucial question, and herein lies the, uh, lies the uh, uh, dilemma, I think, that, uh, that uh, the allies of Ukraine, uh, the Europeans, the United States, uh, uh, in Asia, Japan, South Korea, uh, and others, uh, have when it comes to the more diffident reaction that has been evident in uh, a significant uh, percentage of, of Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America, where uh, historic Russian and predating the Russian Soviet ties, as well as the outreach and development of relationships that uh, the Putin regime has managed successfully over the last 20 years, has created a kind of, uh, shall we say, countervailing view. Uh, most obviously a countervailing view that's been expressed in either the silence uh, or the uh, apparent indifference of major players, uh, such as India, uh, one perfect example, uh, when it comes to the, to, to the moral and, as well as ethical, uh, as well as legal dimensions to Putin's invasion, as well as the crimes uh, 
that have followed. So uh, I would be guessing uh, to be sure, as would everyone else, how that vote uh, in order to try to achieve a majority would turn out. But I think the nose counting will be very difficult for the West in light of what we've already seen uh, in, in, shall we say, the South globe, uh, as well as what inevitably would be a, a very strong effort on mounted uh, by the Russians, as well as on the Russians' behalf by their uh, friends, uh, for example, the Chinese, I suspect, uh, in the forefront uh, to, to block that kind of action. So we know that uh, President Biden has called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. But why then is this Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin opposed to handing over intelligence on Russia's war crimes to the International Criminal Court? Well, I think there's two issues in play here. One, of course, is the American position that's been in place since the uh, Rome Treaty that created the International Court uh, 25 plus years ago uh, established the institution. And that position is that as a non-signatory, it, it was, a, it was a, uh, a treaty that the United States signed uh, at the time uh, that was under uh, President Clinton, but subsequently uh, did not submit to the Senate uh, for ratification because the Clinton administration knew that it would not make it through the Senate and be ratified. And then in a kind of bizarre step, uh, uh, President uh, George W. Bush uh, withdrew the American signature, leaving us as a non-signatory, albeit one that rhetorically, I think, uh, uh, supports, uh, supports the court and its work. The American position that is built on top of that uh, on again, off again uh, uh, association with the court essentially is one that looks at the precedent that would be set if the U.S. acceded to the powers of the court uh, and the U.S. found itself in controversial war wherein uh, the uh, court uh, and its uh, uh, and, and, and its role came to uh, put U.S. forces uh, uh, or U.S. officials in jeopardy abroad uh, by doing exactly what's been done in this case to Vladimir Putin. Uh, the the position is that uh, the Defense Department uh, does not want to set the kind of precedent that might be set by the U.S. Uh, subscribing to the effort to bring uh, Putin before the bar of uh, the, uh, the international bar of justice. Uh, it's a position, quite frankly, that uh, is one that does not uh, uh, persuade in the year 2023 for a variety of reasons, not, not least that there are many different ways in which the U.S. could support the court, uh, which uh, don't require us to, at this point, uh, subscribe to it. Uh, and it's in, in, in all its powers and forms under the Rome Treaty. Uh, but most importantly, it's a position that has just been obviated. Uh, it, it's just been effectively negated by the U.S. Congress in one of the three pieces of legislation that was passed in uh, last year uh, that basically uh, brought the United States and its domestic laws in line with one of the fundamental principles of the court. The piece of legislation essentially stipulated that war criminals who are present on American territories could be prosecuted for their war crimes under U.S. law, and U.S. law uh, sanctions war crimes, uh, 
uh, in U.S. courts. The reason this is important is that one of the primary principles of the ICC, the International Criminal Court, is that uh, in uh, its prosecution, it prosecutes uh, war criminals or people who are accused of war crimes only if they are not uh, being pursued and prosecuted in national courts that have jurisdictions over their cases. So we have essentially at this point aligned our domestic uh, legal system with the principles of the international court. And that in itself is a protection for, for, for U.S. forces uh, or U.S. citizens uh, that would be uh, at risk, uh, so to speak, from accusations that they committed war crimes abroad. But set the legal complexities aside, and believe me, I'm, I'm, I'm no legal scholar, uh, we simply are dealing with a, with a dilemma that President Biden has created for himself. And I think with a good heart, because he recognizes who Putin is and what he's done, that can be resolved by presidential action. And the president has the power to basically mandate that with the new legislation passed by the Hill, we will uh, support the court in its actions. So what's the CIA doing then? Because it's clearly had good intelligence on what Putin was up to. And they warned the Ukrainians before the Russian invasion, what apparently gave them very detailed warnings, including uh, letting them know about hit teams that were sent in to kill Zelensky. So presumably they've got sufficient assets to catalogue and document Russian war crimes. So I'm assuming they ha are doing that. So what's going to happen with all that evidence? Well, let's let's begin with um, a, a kind of Occam's razor analysis of this, uh, and that is that the best and most uh, uh, credible and authoritative uh, sources on war crimes in Ukraine will be the Ukrainians themselves, who are already mounting a major effort on the ground uh, with the capabilities to to find uh, to record. Uh, and to pass on to the uh, to the international authorities uh, a detail that, that they are clearly best equip equipped to, to collect. What other countries, to include it, the American intelligence community, can do is to supplement that, uh, to assist it, to be sure, if they have the physical presence on the ground to do what the Ukrainians can do on their own behalf and do, I'm sure, with, with great skill and professionalism. Uh, but what the U.S. and other allied services can do is to provide corroborating information, it seems to me, first and foremost. And that can come, by the way, through collection means that, frankly, don't have to be clandestine, secret, or, or in any way sensitive. The vast amount of open source information that can be collected by, for example, overhead imagery, and the kind of identification work that can be done using classified sources to correlate things like the presence of Russian units in specific cities, towns, and villages at specific points in time are the kind of corroboration, along with what the Ukrainians themselves in their investigations find on the ground, that can make for a very powerful and compelling case. Much of this can be done I think without jeopardizing sources and methods, simply because so much information as open source, uh, shall we say, pro bono intelligence collectors like the Bellingcats of the world have demonstrated uh, they have at their fingertips uh, can provide uh, to the international court. 
the virtue of having the United States and its European and other allies provide their share of this information is that they have databases that even the best open source in the uh, collection in the public sector does not necessarily have access to. And I think applying those databases, using them to provide, shall we say, the underpinning to the corroborating information they can collect through open source collection means will make for a compelling case, uh, not only against Vladimir Putin, <laughs> as if that's an issue, but uh, against the, the, the very specific units in the military and the military commanders who need to be brought before the, the, uh, the brought into the dock uh, for, for the crimes they've committed on the ground in Ukraine. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Kent Harrington. It's a, a pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Kent Harrington as a former senior CIA analyst who served as National Intelligence Officer for East Asia and as Chief of Station in Asia. And he has an article at his substack, First and Second Thoughts, Pursuing Russia's War Crimes, Words Are Good, Actions are better. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.